You're tuned to Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP, streaming and podcasting at KUSP.org. I'm Robert Polly, and it's time for the 7th Avenue Project. Hello and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. Today on our show, Building the World's Biggest Zoo. No, not that kind of zoo. This kind. That sound you hear if you listen closely is the hum of a genome sequencing lab at UC Santa Cruz. See, the menagerie we're talking about won't house a bunch of flesh and blood animals, but rather their genetic information. The Genome 10K Project, that's what it's called, aims to map the genomes of 10,000 creatures, fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds, and mammals. And to understand just how tall and ordered that is, consider that it took years to sequence just one species genome, ours, back in the late 90s. And in the decades since, scientists have managed to rack up 43 more species. And yet here we are now talking about tackling more than 200 times that many. It would be a giant leap in genetic data, and one that scientists say would provide a mother load of new insights into the biology, the evolution, and even the preservation of animal life on Earth. Well, the project is just in the planning stages, and though it is plenty daunting, it's also feasible and well worth the pain, its proponents say. They include a variety of scientists and institutions from around the world, and one of them is David Hausler. He's director of the Center for Biomolecular Science and Engineering at UC Santa Cruz and a coordinator of the Genome 10K Project. His lab has played an important role in sequencing and comparing the genomes of humans and dozens of other species, and they can't wait to get cracking on the next 10,000. I sat down to talk to David Hausler about the Genome 10K Project, and uh, before we got to the why of it, I wanted to know about the how. That is, how do you go about piecing together a genome in the first place? Remember that DNA is a chain of molecular bases. These are the letters of the genetic alphabet. There are four different letters in all, abbreviated A, T, C, and G. And a genome has millions or billions of these A's, T's, C's, and G's strung together in varying order. Sequencing them means reading them off letter by letter in the correct order, and this all happens way down at the molecular level. So what I want to know is, and excuse me for putting it this way, But how in the do they do that? Well, let me put that question to David Hausler. So we're talking about, as we said, these long sequences of um, DNA letters. Now, how specifically do you guys actually begin to go in and figure out what the sequence is? Well, the sequencing technology is coming along very rapidly at this point. The sequences that we have analyzed and what we post on our website here at Santa Cruz were mostly done with an older sequencing technology called Sanger sequencing, after Fred Sanger, the originator of the method. But the new methodologies that are being used today are hundreds of times faster. We can actually get a base of DNA Uh, much, much cheaper than we could as little as 10 years ago. 
In fact, if you look at the actual statistics, the cost for getting DNA has improved by a factor of 100, and it's done that twice. So overall, we can get DNA 10,000 times cheaper than we could just a decade ago. Which is why some companies now consider it uh, commercially viable to sell their services sequencing the individual genomes of people. Precisely. You know? Have you thought about having yours done? Well, there are different levels of getting your genome sequenced. Uh, you can get a quick survey of your genome by companies like Navigenics or 23andMe, and I've actually done that with both of these companies, uh, and uh, I found the information quite interesting. Uh, some of the information they give about drug sensitivities or um, the possibility that you might be susceptible to certain diseases uh, can be useful, although uh, one of the issues is that we only know very little about how to interpret the genome at this point. And so you can't uh, get as much out of the genome sequence as we would like to date. But, you know, the way to solve that problem is to sequence a lot more genomes and to do the research it will take to understand what's written in these genomes. So um, getting back to the process, you start with a sample of tissue or blood. You can start with a sample, a small sample of tissue, like a punch biopsy or a sample of blood. Or maybe a cheek swab. Cheek swab, even that, uh, is suitable. Uh, you would have to get uh, enough DNA for complete genome sequencing, which would be a lot of... You know, that would be problematic with a small cheek swab with today's technologies, but tomorrow's technologies, possibly. Well, you need some cells, okay? So what happens next in this, I guess, highly mechanized process um, that, that is now state-of-the-art? Well, there are various steps to extract the DNA from the sample, and then this, the DNA is actually amplified so that you get many, many copies of the DNA made. That makes it easier for the machine to read the DNA. There are enzymes that will just copy the DNA over and over again and absolutely, you know, yes. give you a mess of it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> then what? You go through a process called emulsion PCR. Uh, this is polymerase chain reaction, uh, uh, a fancy method of of doubling the amount of DNA, then doubling that again, then doubling it again, until you have quite a lot of DNA from the initial starting sample. And these uh, these small pieces of DNA are either attached to beads or attached directly to a surface. And then there are various methodologies for uh, sequencing by looking at how you can build up complementary strands of DNA wonderful thing about DNA is uh, it always comes in these double strands. Double helix. The double helix, the famous double helix that Watson and Crick uh, discovered. And so you have these A's, C's, T's, and G's, but A is always paired with T, and G is always paired with C on the other side of the helix. So if you have one side of the helix, uh, you can guess what the other side must be. And if you start with one side of the helix and gradually build up the other side, the complementary side, uh, these sequencing technologies are able to detect each time a new base is added on the other side, uh -huh. and that allows us to sequence DNA. Uh-huh. So by filling in the missing pieces, the complementary pieces... That's right. And some big old machine is detecting each base as it's added to that strand. Essentially, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, give us a picture of these machines. What are they? What do they look like? What are they? 
Consistent. Well, you uh, you can go right uh, downstairs in the building uh, across uh, across the way and look at Nader Poorman's lab. We have uh, one of the newer machines that's uh, made by Applied Biosystems, uh, and we're, we also have uh, another one that's made by a company called 454, and we'll get a, a third one in a few weeks uh, by a company uh, called Illumina. They all are, they look like, you know, refrigerator size machines. One of these machines can produce millions of reads of DNA, each read containing uh, between 50 and 100 letters of, of DNA. So you actually uh, can get billions of bases of DNA from a single run of these machines in and just a, a few days. A few days. So um, here's a highly simplified storyline for you to pick apart. Uh, get me a mouse get some mouse blood, you know, do a few sort of chemical, biochemical steps, including copying the DNA. And I take a, I don't know, a test tube full of this stuff, put it in one of these refrigerator-sized machines, and out pops the entire genetic sequence of this mouse a few days later. That's what everybody would love to see uh, <laughs> as, as the future of these. Uh, and, and the technologies are moving towards uh, having everything integrated uh, currently, you you know a week later you get a you get a whole lot of data, billions and billions and billions of of pieces of data, uh, indicating uh, what bases were read in different parts of the genome, and then you have to take these little snippets of DNA and stitch them together into mm. a coherent picture of the mm. genome. Now that turns it turns out to still take enormous computing time, mm. and uh, then after that you have to start uh, interpreting what the differences in the DNA mean or, or what the novel sequences of DNA that you've sequenced mean, and that is uh, an unbounded amount of work. <laughs> we have a lot to learn yet about interpreting DNA. Yeah, it's one thing, again, to uh, decode the sequence of letters, A, T, C, G, A, T, C, G, or whatever the sequence is. It's another thing to know what all that means. Yes, quite another thing. <laughs> Uh, by the way, you're saying that you have to piece it all together. So my simplified idea that you just stick it in the machine and out comes, you know, three billion uh, letters in proper order is is wrong. What comes out are a lot of pieces. That's yeah? right. A bit as if you were trying to reassemble a, a book uh, and you got a bunch of phrases and strings of words. And knowing what you know about grammar, knowing what you know about sort of overlaps between little bits of letters here and there, mm -hmm. you guys laboriously put it all together. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Is this, it's, as, it's as if someone had read snippets of the story, but they, they kept going back over the same page reading different overlapping snippets, and you have to piece together the story uh, from these three or four word partial sentences. Do you remember uh, the Iran hostage uh, crisis back in the 70s when um, the U.S. vacated its embassy and shredded you know, hundreds or thousands of pages of documents. Yes. <laughs> and um, the Iranian um, students or whoever it was that were, were pulling this off actually sat down and laboriously took all these shreds and pieced together those documents and uh, got all kinds of classified information, if you can imagine. <laughs> it's a bit like that. <laughs> it is something like that. That's a great story. <laughs> it really happened, I guess. Um, so one other question about just the basic sequencing uh, and how you construct sort of the standard genome of a species. Before we get on to the, the 10K uh, genome project, which is even more ambitious than anything we've talked about so far, um, 
How do you guys come up with what is the canonical standard genome for an entire species when, say, all of us humans are different, unless you're identical twins? And even then, there might be variations. There are variations. How do you say this is the real version or the real sequence of genetic letters for everybody? Well, we avoid the word real. I'm sorry. Uh, we use the word reference. <laughs> That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> it's, we, yes, we don't want to presume that, that any genome is more real than any other genome. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, what we have done is quite arbitrarily taken an individual genome and used it as a reference. Uh, actually, the public reference genome is a bit of a composite. Most of it comes from one unknown person in Buffalo, uh, some guy in Buffalo. We know it's a guy because we've got a Y chromosome. And uh, the rest of it comes from other anonymous donors. Uh, so that is a good starting point. And because we're 99.9% .9 identical, uh, any other genome sequence is easily compared to that. And when you see a difference, you can't say that any one of the versions is more real than the other. Uh, it just uh, or, or is more a normal or more normal. You yeah. you can you can't say that anyone is more normal. Although you can look at the frequency with which you see that mutation. And now that we are looking at thousands of genomes potentially, uh, there is a project called the Thousand Genomes Project. Actually, that we are uh, helping with from Santa Cruz in terms of displaying the data. But after you've seen thousands of genomes, you can count how many times different variants occur. And it depends on the population that you see. Uh, nor most of the variants are present uh, to some degree in almost every population, though at least the variants that are uh, not uh, extremely rare. Um, and yet it might change from population to population. Uh, then in any particular uh, individual's genome, you will find very rare variants, sometimes called private variants, that only they have or only they and their very close family have in the genome. In order to find all this out, you have to sequence uh, a lot of individuals' genes. Yeah. Absolutely. So arbitrarily pick one person for that initial reference genome. Does that remain the reference genome? Uh, or do you later sometimes discover, well, that guy or gal we picked had a very rare mutation. That's not a good choice for a reference. That is a a very active discussion at this point uh, to what extent we are going to change the reference genome to reflect a version of the genome that is more common mm. in most places. Uh, and there are, there's no real decision on, on that at this point. How interesting. I mean, that individual, and in, in, that's highly classified information as to who that original person was. Oh, well, was. it's uh, absolutely irretrievable. It was oh. uh, set up to be completely anonymous. completely anonymous and no way to retrieve it. But that was a unique individual. That person was uh, of a particular ethnicity, of a particular eye color, particular skin color, and, and a million other, you know, very, very um, precise characteristics. Absolutely, as are some of the genomes that we have now for named individuals. So several individuals have stepped forward and said, oh, I'm going to sequence my genome, and I'm just going to make it public, and I'll tell you, it's me. Most famously, Craig Venter himself, yeah? Craig Venter himself was <laughs> uh, one of the first there, and Jim Watson. Oh, Jim Watson, uh, too, yeah. He's done that. and uh, Turns out he has a very low IQ. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> we won't go there. Uh, Steve Quake at Stanford has done that. Uh, and so there are, there are a number of uh, individuals now, some famous, that have uh, posted their genomes on the Internet. And I want to remind listeners that this is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. Robert Polly here, talking today to David Hausler, professor of biomolecular engineering at UC Santa Cruz and a coordinator of the Genome 10K Project. It's a new initiative to map the genomes of 10,000 animal species. Well, let's um, now um, transition to the current project, this really ambitious um, raising of the stakes. So far, your lab and others together have sequenced the genomes of 44 species? Yes, so our lab did not sequence, uh, has not sequenced a, a complete genome uh, in this 44, but the... Uh, the National Human Genome Research Institute and some other research institutes internationally have funded uh, the sequencing of 44 genomes from different species to date. We've got uh, human beings, we've got great apes, we've got yes. dogs, mice. That's right. And some other not-so-well-known animals, yes. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you want to up Elephant the... Elephant <laughs> true and... Some of your more obscure animals have already been sequenced. Uh, but you want to up the ante this time around to 10,000 10, species. Yes. 10,000 vertebrates alone out of, uh, what, 60,000 uh, total vertebrate species, known vertebrate species? There are uh, about 60,000 known or documented species of vertebrates. Before I ask you why you want to do this, let me ask you how you picked that number 10,000 and uh, how are you going to pick those species? Well, we uh, actually are viewing 10,000 as a, as a minimum, and we feel that the drop in the sequencing cost is so precipitous. Um, it's the improvement in sequencing cost is actually more dramatic than the improvement in computer costs, transistor costs, during the height of the semiconductor revolution. Many people have heard of Moore's Law that computing technology improves by a factor of two. Every 18 uh, months. Every 18 months. Yeah. Uh, well, in the last few years, sequencing has improved by 10 times that much. Mm. So we have an enormously steep increase in capability. Uh, this is, we're riding an extraordinary technology curve at this point. And so, as I said... The cost has dropped by a factor of 10,000 in the last few years. It's now down to approximately uh, $50,000 to $100,000 per genome. Well, if it drops by another factor of 10, we're starting to get within range. A $5,000 genome would start to be in range. Our actual goal is $3,000 genome. Uh, and we are on target for that in the next couple of years if the technology continues to improve as it has been improving. What, what in the technology is improving so quickly? Oh, it's a number of things. There are many companies uh, after it, and they're, they're taking many different approaches to the problem. Uh, and uh, the combined um, brilliance of many, many engineers is driving innovation at an unprecedented rate. Mm. So it's... It's at various levels, computing, Many uh, chemistry, levels. all of that? All of everything, uh -huh. yes. It, it's, it, we're experiencing innovation at all levels. Wow. 
But so, I think I've deviated from your question here. Well, well, it, there, it is in part a dollars and cents question. So it I'm glad you talked about and it. Cents. Yeah. So, so we think that actually the limiting factor will be the acquisition of the samples, uh, the organization of the samples, and the analysis of the data that results from the samples. We don't think the cost of sequencing will be the limiting factor. Mm. And so we think it's going to be quite a struggle to actually collect 10,000 different species that have samples that are suitable for DNA sequencing and where the particular uh, source of the sample is is completely documented, um, that an expert has identified the animal, that we understand the species completely, uh, if the species is protected by environmental protection law, that all of the appropriate paperwork uh, is done. Yeah, so we'll get back to my question as to why 10,000, other than it's a cool number, uh, in a moment. But let's talk about this first phase, which is this uh, great collecting expedition. Actually, uh, one more comment on that before we go yeah. on. The um, All of the different species of uh animals on this planet are divided into genera according to the Linnaean scheme uh, and the genera group very closely related species together so you have a genus and then within the genus you have the different species of that genus example our genus is homo homo <laughs> dog it's canidae Can- canidae yes canidae. Right. and so you have 10,000, actually remarkably close to 10,000 different genera of vertebrates. And so we have sized the project so that we can get approximately one species per Per genus. Oh, well, that makes perfect sense if you're trying to ultimately get a better picture of our family tree, we meaning all the vertebrates. Yes. So we're talking about vertebrates, that is fish and up, you know, reptiles, amphibians, birds, (laughs) and mammals. And uh, 10,000, we're talking about obscure fish, lizards no one has ever heard of, uh, and even, as I understand it, some extinct groups, yeah? Absolutely. We are very excited about including extinct species. Uh, We uh, hope to take another shot at the Tasmanian tiger, uh, for example. Wow. uh, the woolly mammoth made a big press. Um, they found frozen bits of woolly mammoth. Absolutely. What and about Tasmanian tigers? Where are you going to get the samples? There are zoo samples oh. that uh, are apparently suitable for uh, sequencing from the Tasmanian tiger, and there's all, oh, already been some draft sequencing work on that, as well as the woolly mammoth. The woolly mammoth made a big splash in Nature when it was published mm-hmm. recently. We have the some of the leaders from those projects Simon Schuster and Webb Miller on our uh, in our community of scientists are are collaborative. Uh, we also have Ed Green who worked on the Neanderthal genome project with Svante Pabo. We're expecting a big publication on that project soon. And, and what did they have left of Neanderthals um, that was sufficient to get you know whole DNA samples? Well, you can get uh, DNA from teeth. Uh, and other bones. Uh, they have bones and teeth from approximately 30,000 years ago. There's a particularly good sample that's 38,000 years old, and they have been able to extract DNA from that and sequence it. You get small pieces of DNA, uh, but uh, there's enough of it there that if you keep sequencing long enough, then you can cover the whole genome. Wow. Um, and we probably should just... Um 
say to some listeners who are imagining a Jurassic Park scenario that that's not really what we're talking about? We aren't, uh, as part of this project, uh, <laughs> planning to resurrect these ancient species. Uh, that is beyond the scope uh, of the project. Um, and I often get that question when I'm giving speeches about this this project. And I don't dismiss it out of hand in the sense that um, in some cases where there are endangered species, there's species of turtles in the Galapagos that have recently gone extinct. And there are serious proposals to start with the neighboring similar species, um, sequence the genomes of the extinct species and the neighboring living species, both look at the differences and then start breeding the living species to look more like the extinct species by specifically introducing genes, uh, perhaps one at a time or hopefully more efficiently. Wow. And over a huge number of generations, you would actually then recapitulate the extinct species. No, This has been seriously proposed. It has been seriously proposed, and yet even when you clone an animal, at least a, a complicated animal, you don't get an exact duplicate. No. Because there's a lot beyond the genome itself that makes an animal what it is. Yeah? Well, you know, I always say to look at identical twins, and for, as you said before, uh, they are essentially genetically identical. They will only differ in a few spots uh, in their genome. You know, uh, a few tens of places out of three billion is normally insignificant differences. And so when you think about two twins, they uh, really tells you how much of similarity is determined by the genome and how much of it is determined by environment. Because to, to the extent that the, the twins are similar, that's determined by the genome. To the extent they're different, that's mainly because the, of the environmental exposure. Well, well, there are elements that are inheritable and affect how you turn out and what happens to you that aren't even part of the the genes per se, yes. uh, epigenetic. epigenetic factors. Yes. Yeah, there are things in your, your mother's egg, for instance, that may affect how the baby turns out that weren't part of the, the chromosomes, you know, contributed by the mother or the father. They're outside that, mm -hmm. yeah? Uh, or they're part of the chromosomes but not part of the genes. Uh, yes, we don't understand how uh, all of the extra material, especially the material in the mother's egg, which contains a lot more initial starting material than the father's sperm. Uh, but this material in the mother's egg includes RNA messages and proteins uh, that do affect the developing embryo during the first uh, several divisions. Um, a lot of that, the bulk of that information that is inherited from the mother is reworked. It's actually erased and rewritten uh, the marks that are left along the DNA sequence. But there are cases where some of it leaks through. And so you have a uh, phenomenon like uh, paternal and maternal imprinting and other uh, what are called epigenetic or outside the genome phenomena. And uh, these are things that are we're just now starting to understand uh, they are important. Uh, we when we do when we do clone animals or uh, do experiments with stem cells, uh, we do run into these issues, and uh, they are they are significant. But we always have to keep in mind that this is a very very tiny percentage of the information. Uh, the vast bulk of all of the information. 
that determines you genetically is passed along in the exact way that Watson and Crick mm. uh, predicted. Mm. The DNA itself has has been and and is fundamentally the stuff of evolution in the in the 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 message the vital message that's passed down from parent to offspring. So um, to make a long story short, the new discoveries about epigenetics that is inheritable factors outside of the genome um, that don't necessarily obey the laws of Mendelian genetics are still not completely, you know, uprooting our fundamental understanding of inheritance and evolution, not at all. But to tie up that little tangent we just went on, which is quite fascinating, um, the idea of recreating an extinct species is not completely out of the question, at least in the case where a real close relative still survives. Well, in this case... A closely related species. Certainly, yeah. Certainly it would be feasible. A very laborious process, Mm -hmm. but, but... uh, I think there's no question about feasibility in this regard. So back to 10K Genome Project. It starts out, first phase, is this maybe the greatest collecting uh, effort you know, ever attempted. Maybe I'm exaggerating that, but intact DNA samples from 10,000 separate species from roughly 10,000 gen- genuses, geni. Uh, genera. Genera. There we go. <laughs> <It's> the plural. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I mean, this is a fantastically ambitious effort on its own. As you said, it's not always easy to even find a good example of a particular rare species out there and then to get the permission or, 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 you know, to get its DNA. So that's phase one. What do you expect uh, that'll take? Well, we're we're actually uh, piggybacking on spectacular projects that have gone before us here. Uh, So we have the advantage of enormous collections that have been built up over several decades of painstaking fieldwork. Uh, we have the, the extraordinary collection of frozen tissues at uh, Louisiana State University, for example. Um, we have... That's a big repository. It's a very big repository. We have the Frozen Zoo from the University of California, San Diego, uh, and uh, the San Diego Zoo. The frozen zoo. Yes, the I San like Diego the sound zoo. of it. People are probably picturing frozen whole animals. That's yeah, not, no, no, that's no. not <laughs> what it is. No. Yes, these again are the small uh, snippets of of tissue or, or blood samples that are required to produce the DNA sequence and nothing more. <laughs> yes, it would be quite expensive to uh, keep the larger animals <laughs> fully frozen. Then again, you haven't seen my freezer. Yes. <laughs> Um, so, so yes. Yeah, so, so part of this has already been done, and it has yeah. been done in yeah. there. And we are uh, able to take advantage of this extraordinary effort. Uh, when we met in April to uh, to launch this project, to, to discuss th- these were the discussions that led to the launching of the project. Uh, we called uh, scientists from all over the world uh, that had substantial collections of frozen tissue already. And uh, they got together uh, in Santa Cruz in April down at Long's Marine Lab. Um, And at first, they were a bit skeptical that we could actually uh, count on the sequencing technology improving the way we needed to have it improve in order to make this feasible. Also skeptical that it could be organized because there are a lot of people that don't traditionally work with each other, and it's, it's difficult to to organize large cooperative projects. But by the second day, uh, we had uh, a whole room full of converts 
it was just wonderful to see. People got so excited about the project, and they realized that if they combined their collections, we already had a huge leg up on this. How much? Uh, well, how many? At the, at the meeting, we were already getting close to the 10,000 mark, oh, just, just oh. from more or less passing the hat virtually uh, around the room. People are and, saying, you know, I've got a sample of Wilson's least shrew you know, precisely. in my freezer, <laughs> there was a, there there, and you know there was there were, we broke up into groups, uh, and you know people were asking, does anybody have an aardvark of this type? You know, and so forth. Um, I'd like to have been there. It was amazing, and uh, since the meeting, we have uh, gotten up to sixteen thousand different sam- species represented in our sample collection. So we we have samples representing sixteen thousand different species at this point. And you can uh, look at the database online. You can start uh, at the the top of the tree of vertebrates and explore out onto the branches of all of the different species online. Uh, the website is? Well, all you have to do is Google Genome 10K. The first hit is your the website. The first hit is us. Yeah, with yeah. the database. And the database is on there. That was the, the work of Mark Deakins and uh, Nan Nguyen. Uh, she did a fantastic job in building this database here at Santa Cruz. And we'll get back to our conversation with biomolecular scientist David Hausler talking about the Genome 10K project in just a moment. This is another project, the 7th Avenue Project, that's the name of the show, on Central Coast Public Radio KUSP. I'm Robert Polly. Now back to today's interview with David Hausler of UC Santa Cruz. He's one of the coordinators of a proposed initiative to decode the complete genetic information of 10,000 vertebrate animals, fish, reptiles, amphibians, birds, and mammals. It's called the Genome 10K Project. I got it backwards earlier in the interview when I called it the 10K Genome Project. It is Genome 10K. And in the first half of our conversation, David Hausler and I talked about the techniques that researchers use to sequence genes and about the massive effort to gather DNA from 10,000 species, including rare and extinct animals. And next, the answer to a question that I'm sure is crossing the minds of many of you listeners. I know it sounds really cool to have the genomes of 10,000 species sequenced, but why? Why do it? You know, we, we have interest from many different scientists who have many different perspectives on this, and there are many, many reasons. But I think the one thing that unifies us all is pure scientific curiosity, how all of these animals evolved from a common ancestor that lived 500 to 600 million years ago. We know this. And you're talking about the common ancestor of all vertebrates. all vertebrates. Mm -hmm. It was a... pre-fish thing. It was an ocean-going animal. Mm -hmm. Um, It it had uh, a segmented body with muscles. It had a primitive brain-like structure. It, you know, was capable of locomotion, uh, sight. uh, Looked like a worm or a fish. It was more like a very simple fish. You know, if you think about it as a simple, simple-minded fish. Um, so we, it, it, we 
have an opportunity to understand how the spectacular innovations occurred at the genetic level. So there was a genome of this creature, and it was already billion bases. But then during the eons of time that happened, the next half a billion years, we see a remarkable divergence of one of the most successful branches of life on this planet. The vertebrates are remarkably malleable and remarkably successful. So the descendants of this animal conquered land and air. Yeah, we have this this incredible explosion of uh, life forms out of this single ancestor from half a billion years ago, a little more than half a billion years right. ago. So if you guys collect the, the uh, DNA of all these species um, who call that uh, ancestral creature grandpa, yes. <laughs> what can you tell from that DNA? Well, we with this many species, uh, we will be able to see the individual changes. And so what happens is when we compare the human genome to the mouse genome, there's just so, so many differences uh, that we cannot put together a history of which changes came first on which lineage and so forth. But um, as we fill in the genomes densely for closely related species, we're able to say, aha, okay, for these two closely related species, there are only a few changes, and so we know that these changes happen somewhere within these two species. Now look at a third mm. species that's also close, and we see that, aha, the, two, the first two species have an A here. The outgroup, the third species, has a C, and if we look further on, all the other species have a C. Then we can say, aha, so it's just these two species that are very closely related that have an A. Everybody else has a C, so that C changed to an A, and, and it's about this time and in this specific lineage. And so we can pin down actual DNA change events, actual mutations occurred in one animal to begin with, and then were passed on to their offspring and their offspring's offspring, and even through species that derived from that, all the way to today. But we can go back and date it and approximately say at some time there was one animal here that incurred this mutation, and now that explains why we see these differences today. You can't actually just look at a couple of genomes and say, oh, this occurred um, 20 million years ago. But you have lots of other information from fossils. Right. Just by looking at the genomes, we get uh, an order of events right. on the branches. Right. Uh, but then dating the points at which the branches happened, we use fossils. Mm -hmm. And so that's uh, why we have a number of scientists uh, that are uh, paleontologists and other people interested in ancient climates and so forth, so we can then piece together what was going on at the time these DNA changes were happening? And then this leads to the very exciting question about what were the actual evolutionary forces? So this is Darwin in action. This is Darwin come alive. I was just thinking, if only he were alive to, to see this. Yeah, He would be thrilled to see this. <laughs> it, it, it would be beyond his imagination at that point to actually... Think of having millions and millions of specific changes in this script. Of course, Darwin didn't, didn't know about DNA and that there was a simple digital script underlying uh, 
the information that is passed down. He didn't even know the, about genes, you know. No, absolutely at all. Uh, not in not in any concrete sense. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the gene, you know, the the this notion of something that is passed on that causes children to be similar to uh, their parents is was a very abstract. Uh, notion at that time. It wasn't clear what stuff was responsible for it. Mm -hmm. But now we know that stuff. Mm -hmm. We know that it's Mm -hmm. DNA Mm -hmm. and we can watch it changing in action. And we can address to what extent were these driven by the evolutionary forces. If we think about the ancient climate, if we think about the situation, and if we think about the adaptations that we observe, the physiological adaptations and behavioral adaptations, uh, and even very deep molecular adaptations. Their vertebrates have specific types of cells called neural crest cells that that, uh, contribute to the melanin in your skin, to parts of your brain, to your bones, to your heart. Uh, And there's no invertebrate species that has cells like this. These are are cells that... that uh, are present in embryonic development that give rise to these various yes, things you're talking very about. Early, they yeah. show up very early yeah. in embryonic development, only in vertebrates. So we have genes that are unique to vertebrates. We have cells that are unique to vertebrates. We have appendages uh, like wings and so forth that have their specific vertebrate forms. And uh, we have behaviors uh, and uh, very high-level uh, biological levels of organization uh, that are innovations that are specific to the vertebrate. So all of these things happened in some orderly progression as the vertebrates evolved from their common ancestor. This is the great story of life unfolding. It's like Rudyard Kipling, uh, you know, how did the elephant get its trunk? Except that it's not a just-so story. Exactly. (laughs) But, but, uh, But we want to answer this in a scientific approach. Um, and no one really knows these. I mean, if you think about the actual questions that Kipling addressed, mm, mm, <laughs> we don't understand, mm, uh, fully understand the genetics. Mm. We, you know, there's some very interesting work on how the leopard got its spots. Is there really? Um, but many of the details are still unclear at this point. So biggest reason for this 10K Genome Project of all is to start to really fill in the tree of life, Absolutely. you know, in far more detail than we have so far. Um You've been, as we said earlier, you, your lab and many others have been sequencing the genomes of a handful of species um, over the last 10 years or so and comparing those genomes to find all kinds of interesting things out, and we'll talk about a few of those. But first, this just the act of comparison itself. Turns out that's really hard to do, isn't it? Very difficult, yes. I've devoted years and years now to this, about a decade, and uh, I still wake up in the morning thinking, why don't I really understand this problem yet? <laughs> I've been thinking about it for 10 years. Okay, so... It's a hard question. So we know that the genome is is long, you know, in the case of humans, 3 billion letters. But if we put that side by side with the genome of a chimp, which is also 3 billion letters, right? Yes. Why can't roughly. you just say, oh, here's where the differences are? It does seem like the <laughs> that, w- that would be the obvious approach. <laughs> yep. So what makes this complicated is that during evolution, the chromosomes are rearranged. Pieces of chromosomes are cut out and moved to different places, 
pieces of chromosomes are actually duplicated multiple times, and those copies are moved to different places. Pieces are lost, and very rarely uh, you have integration of DNA that didn't come from your parent. Um, this can come from viruses like uh, RNA viruses, like the uh, uh, AIDS virus, for example, can integrate and can make complementary DNA that integrates into the genome. Uh, completely novel DNA of this type tends to be a small part of the genome, but actually after these viruses integrate, so-called retroviruses like like the uh, AIDS virus and others, uh, then some of that material keeps copying itself and passing itself on to new generations. And occasionally in a germ cell, uh, which means uh, an egg or a sperm, you will have this little piece of virally derived DNA make extra copies of itself, and then the child has more DNA than the parent had. And it turns out that more than half of the DNA in your genome is derived from this process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So more than half of the DNA, and we think more like 80% uh, percent or more, actually is not related to DNA that was in this ancestor that lived 500 million years ago. Um, but is DNA that was introduced by viruses and then duplicated and passed down from generation to generation. It, it bloated out uh, lots of segments of your genome. There are graveyards of these dead fragments of viruses that you see littering the genome. Sometimes you're, you, we, we're trying to read the genes off, and in between them mm. is all of the stuff. It's been called junk DNA oftentimes in the past, because it seems like just debris mm. left over from this process. But our lab, uh, interestingly enough, among many other labs... Can, now, can I jump in, David, and so say... Go ahead, and you want to, you want to lead into this? Uh, uh, well, as a matter of fact, I just want to make sure we've, we've sort of answered um, the naive question, deliberately naive question I asked a moment ago, which yes. is... I think uh, we got off on <laughs> Which is the simplified picture of uh, a DNA sequence uh, as being somehow this long string that's three billion letters long, and all you have to do is line up two strings from different species right, and read yes. off the differences. Right. In fact, what you're saying is, first of all, we way, I way oversimplified by presenting it as one string. It's on 23 chromosomes yes. in the case of human beings. It's in different pieces. But you're saying it has lots of other stuff in there, and so even lining up what might be uh, related genes, what might be mm -hmm. sequences that are uh, directly analogous between two species, that's hard, really hard. And I'm sure you have some great computers in your lab, but I've heard that this process of just comparing two genomes and finding those related areas to compare consumes the power of your computers um, for long stretches of time. That is true. We have well over a 1,000 processing units in our cluster uh, and this compute cluster is is already being stressed to the maximum. Uh, comparing the 44 genomes to each other took weeks and tied us up, you know, preventing us from being able to do some other tasks. And uh, we have these meetings where we shake our heads and say, "Boy, what's it going to be like when there's a hundred or?" And then, or 10, when 000. I mentioned the ten thousand, I get very uh, a very kind of uh, dirty looks from the staff. People turn green. Uh, we start to wonder how we're going to deal with that. Oh, but I can see smiles across the faces of executives at Intel. 
<laughs> yes, yeah, so I think this is an area for for large scale computing. It, it will be an exciting challenge uh, with the, this project and the Thousand Human Genomes Project and all of the other projects that are launching, uh, analyzing DNA uh, data using new uh, large compute farms or cloud computing or some of these other Grid new computing paradigms. Yeah. Uh, these are future ways that we are going to make it feasible to do the massive amount of computation. But at Santa Cruz, we also work on coming up with cleverer algorithms to do this faster and faster. And, you know, efficiency is obtainable when you really understand the problem. But it turns out that when you have pieces of DNA that are rearranging themselves and duplicating and being lost and replaced by other pieces of DNA, it becomes a puzzle that's very hard to put back together mm. again. And, and this um, activity you're describing, uh, bits of DNA within a particular species genome. That's yeah? right. Jumping around, duplicating themselves, and creating this huge mass of stuff that has been called junk DNA. It's actually greater than 98% of our genome is this stuff, right? Well, uh, only 1.5% of our genome is protein-coding genes. What so, we normally think of as genes. Right. Yeah. We normally think of genes as, as little snippets of DNA that mm. are transcribed into RNA and then translated into protein. This is sometimes called the central dogma of molecular biology. Um, but it turns out that that is only the minority. Uh, that, that's the, the function of only the min minority of bases in the human genome. At least 80% of it is is these virally derived. And then there are the in-between parts that we don't know. We can't prove that it, it was derived from one of these uh, ancient uh, processes. These are technically called transposons, the mm -hmm. little pieces that were originally derived from viruses, for the most part, mm -hmm. that jump around. So there are, there's transposon-derived DNA, there are genes, and then there are you know, 10 or 15% of the DNA in there that we can't really know. Uh, we don't really know what its origin uh, was. So I may have overstated it when I said more than 98% is junk. 1.5% uh, roughly is genes. There's another component that is regulatory DNA yes. and does other valuable things. Right. And then the remainder is so-called junk. That's a, right. A big, yes. big percentage. At least 80% of it yeah. is what I would think of as certified junk. I, I really don't think it does much of anything. It's just along for the ride. Well, you've been studying it in your lab after comparing these various species' genomes. And um, this is something I want to talk to you about because, of course, this is one of the biggest stories in genomic research uh, in the last couple decades is just how much junk there is, mm -hmm. why it's there, and why it sticks around. You know, if it's junk, why didn't evolution discard it? Usually... Stuff that's not valuable um, is a liability, and the organisms mm -hmm. that carry it are at a disadvantage, and survival of the fittest being what it is, it usually gets mm -hmm. lost, you know, gets dumped from the genome. So why did we carry around 80% of our genome in the form of um, apparently useless stuff? Well, not all species... Uh are willing to do this. Uh, so <laughs> if you look at bacteria or yeast, uh, they have almost no junk. Um, but to be successful in the, in the very competitive world of, of a yeast, uh, you have to be lean and mean. 
Uh, you really, it, you, you care about the amount of energy you expend in duplicating your genome. Uh, efficient metabolism is paramount. This is metabolism within the cell. And so you You're saying afford, yeast has it tougher than we do? Uh, they, they have a lot of competition out there, and uh, they don't have uh, some of the things that, that we can fall back on. Uh, we can use our intelligence and uh, our ability to uh, change our environment to, to fit our uh, needs uh, to get by. So it turns out that larger animals uh, end up being able to afford copying the extra meaningless DNA. It, it doesn't reduce fitness that much to carry around uh, this uh, extra DNA. So uh, we're, we're pushing um, this shopping cart full, full, full of junk. Exactly. <laughs> down the street yeah. of life. <laughs> and it may, you know, it, it, uh, you know, you can't say that it's completely purposeless. Uh, the way I like to think about it is you could probably scramble the letters of that junk and not, not much would happen. Um, but it may be that it's important that the spacing is r roughly right uh, because we do find that genes that are separated by large spaces, are, so genes are made of what are called exons separated by introns, so uh, you can think about them as uh, the effective part of the gene that's making the protein and then some junk in between. And to, to make a protein, you remove that part uh, represented by the intron and piece yeah. together the exons, right. and yeah. you get a protein. Exactly, and the cell does this every time, and it seems foolish. Uh, why store these extra pieces of in the DNA, these introns, if you're just going to throw them away mm -hmm. before you make the protein? And so one would think, well, why don't we just make a genetic mutant where we get rid of them for the cell? Wouldn't, wouldn't, isn't the cell going to be happier? Turns out it's very unhappy when you do that. Mm. So somehow the cell needs to process these introns uh, to function correctly. Uh, and part of that is just the way, uh, way it ended up in evolution. So evolution is a fine-tuning of things like timing and uh, subtle signals that balance the activity in the cell. Uh, and so just the spacing introduced by junk DNA may help that balance. And the reason it's there is just because it happened to end up that way evolutionarily. Evolution, of course, in molecular evolution is a combination of, of drift and selection. Mm -hmm. and so we are constantly subject to a barrage of mutations that cause drift, just change. One of the drifts is addition of extra material is happening all the time. There's pressure to add material by this copying routine. Yeah, you've got a Xerox machine in there that uh, is running on its own and spitting yes. out stuff all the time. Right. And that accumulates. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and if it happens to be good in terms of timing mm -hmm. to have a little extra bulk in the intron, then why not keep it around? It doesn't really cost that much. So the the last word on junk DNA, I'm sure, has not been delivered. But at this point, the best hypothesis, uh, in your opinion, is that it doesn't really do anything, but we've gotten used to it, and um, therefore snipping it out would be a bad idea. <laughs> yes, that's right. The cell is addicted to it or used to it. But it also has formed the basis for many evolutionary innovations. So there are new genes and new regulatory elements that have been born out of the junk, 
and we have several examples in my lab now. So, oh, for the, instance, the junk is actually a creative force in evolution. You know, these uh, spare parts that sit around uh, that old, you know, bicycle rim that you threw in the attic. Exactly. You find a new use for it someday. <laughs> that is exactly it. And uh, Sidney Brenner has the Nobel laureate has a famous remark about why why he didn't call it trash. Uh, and it's because, uh, well, it isn't trash. Trash you throw away. Junk is something you store in the attic in case you might need it later on. And that's what the genome is doing. Now, um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about uh, another one of um, the, the benefits and goals of the uh, Genome 10K project. We talked about how it's you know a huge treasure trove of sort of evolutionary information. What about... Um, conserving endangered species, um, environmental concerns about the way species are reacting to events like global warming, things like that. Does it have a role in that regard? Most definitely. And this is uh, another major motivation for the project. I would uh, call this motivation, in general, animal health. So I thought you were uh, going to say animal house, but... Uh. <laughs> We have an enormous enterprise in the National Institute of Health uh, to try to keep us humans healthy. Um, But there's less uh, money and less effort put into keeping the different species on this planet healthy. Of course, number one is keeping their habitats intact, making sure we don't suffer a dramatic climate change. And we... uh, do not mean to detract from these efforts at all. We think the genetic information is an important addition to that. Just as humans depend on genetic information increasingly for better medical treatment, so will animals. And if you look at endangered species in particular, they tend to harbor genetic defects that are universal in their species at a much higher rate. If you look at genetic problems in uh, species with high populations like humans, yes, there are a few individuals that have severe genetic problems like cystic fibrosis or something like that, um, which is a devastating disease, and it does occur in a small fraction of the population, Uh, but it isn't universal. But If you consider uh, an endangered species, we have the susceptibility with such a small small population and lack of diversity for having a genetic problem like that become universal within the population. Imagine... Because when you have uh, a population of 30 Siberian tigers or whatever, they're inbreeding, essentially. They're inbreeding, exactly. And inbreeding reveals these uh, glitches, which are normally not significant for most of the population. Most of the people have one good copy, so if they have one bad copy, it doesn't matter because the good copy makes up for it. And occasionally you'll have an unlucky child that inherits two defective copies, and then you'll have a problem. Well, this with inbreeding, this, this happens at enormous rate. So you can imagine a, a, a population in which everybody had cystic fibrosis. It's just dem- it would be just devastating. So the analogous thing is happening with our endangered species, and you have a collapse that leads inevitably to extinction when the, popul- when the genetic diversity falls below a certain level. The only real help is, is to understand what are 
the genetic problems within the species and uh, undertake a, a, a program to correct them, usually by breeding, uh, careful breeding. Uh, and we think genetics will be uh, a main part of this, and the first step is to get a reference genome for these species. How about looking at genetic adaptations to changes like climate change? This is another area. We want to know how the species will respond to threats or stresses. These can be introduced by environmental stresses, new competitions, uh, infectious diseases are another source of threat. Uh, and so if you understand the uh, functioning of the immune system by sequencing the major histocompatibility complex genes, for example, uh, you can better predict uh, whether there is enough uh, genetic diversity or the appropriate genetic architecture to resist an infectious disease or not. Uh, certainly, um, environmental toxins are a main uh, source of concern, and we do understand certain genes that are responsible for the protection of the organism against environmental toxins. And uh, so that would be a key use for this genetic information. Well, it sounds to me like you have got your work cut out for you, and uh, you're going to be busy for a long time. We intend to be, and we're looking forward to it. I'll let you get back to it. Thanks a lot. David Hausler directs the Center for Biomolecular Science and Engineering at UC Santa Cruz and is a proud coordinator of the Genome 10K Project. And I have been the proud host of the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and I will be back next week. 